Amen. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I hope you have your Bibles, and you will open to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Now, um, we're going to take a brief break this morning from our sermon series on the parables. That, that's either good news for you or bad news, if you were really excited about us continuing in the parables. Um, that's good news for you if you thought we were done. Well, that's bad news for you, because we're going to continue on, um, hopefully through May, with our parables. But this morning, we're going to take a brief break um, to deal with a critical ministry of our church, and that is the ministry of deacons. So every couple of years, um, we hold deacon nominations so that we can continue to grow and improve this biblical ministry. So we will be looking at what many to believe, uh, what, what many believe to be the calling of the first deacons in Acts chapter six in the church at Jerusalem. Now, as we begin, for some of you that might not be from Baptist circles or come from, uh, or come from a different denominational structure, um, it's important to, as we begin for you to recognize that we believe that there are two New Testament offices in a local church, and they're meant to operate in partnership with one another, though both carry different roles and responsibilities. The first office is the office of pastor or elder or overseer. The New Testament uses three words synonymously to describe this one office. And those three words help flesh out the function of that office. So if you're in Acts, before you go to Acts 6, flip over to Acts 20. And I want to show you how we know that these words are synonymous, especially from the New Testament witness. So in Acts chapter 20, look there at verse 17. Paul is traveling back around and he does something in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. He says this, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Notice, elders, plural, church, singular. He called the elders of this one local church to come to him. Now skip down to verse 28 and notice what Paul tells these elders to do. In verse 28, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, that's the word for pastor, to shepherd or pastor the church of God, which he obtained in his own blood. So Paul's instructions are for the elders to pastor and oversee the church at Ephesus. Now Peter does the same thing when he writes in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5. Listen to what he says there, all three words synonymous. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Here's what he tells those elders to do. He says, shepherd, pastor, pastor the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, same word for overseer, not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Again, one office, three different words explaining this one office. Now, the second New Testament office that we're going to focus on today is the office of deacon. Paul lists both offices, pastor and deacon, side by side in his letter to Timothy that we're going to look at later. Um, but he also addresses both offices in his letter to the church at Philippians. If you remember our study of Philippians, Paul begins his salutation by saying this. He says, 
Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who were at Philippi with the overseers, or the pastors and elders, and the deacons. So now let's look at Acts 6 and see how this group of, this group of leaders in the church, this group of servant leaders, deacons, came to be about. So look there in Acts chapter 6. I'll read verses 1 through 7. It says there, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples, that's the whole church, and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering as they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and, Parm and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, here we go. Let's work through this together. I want you to notice the first problem. There's a problem, okay? This ministry came about because of a problem. And the problem was this. There was conflict threatening the internal unity of the church. That was the problem. Verse 1, however, gives you a good problem. If you look at the beginning of verse 1, it says that the disciples were increasing in number. That's a good problem, right? The word of God is spreading. People are coming to Jesus. This is just a few chapters after Pentecost when Peter preached and 3,000 people were added to the church there. But as this group grew and they were folded together, people from all different walks of life, a conflict arose. And so here is kind of what happened. It says there that the complaint arose between the Hellenistic Jews and their widows and, and, and sorry... The complaint arose between the Hellenistic Jews and their widows who were being overlooked um, in the daily distribution while the Hebrew widows were being cared for. Now, here's the context that you need to understand, okay? Ancient Jerusalem context. The city of Jerusalem had a large minority of Greek-speaking Jews who had moved back to Jerusalem from the diaspora because they wanted to live out their last days in the city of God. So that's why this, there was always an influx of those retirement age who would come back to live out their remaining days in the city of God, and they'd live the rest of their life out in the Greek-speaking world amongst the other cities. And so when they moved back, they were mostly Greek-speaking, but most of the Jews in Jerusalem were Aramaic-speaking, and they considered these Israelites second-class citizens. They were second-class citizens because they were Hellenized or, or from a Greek culture. Now, just a few chapters earlier, at Pentecost, remember what happened. These two groups heard the gospel. They came to Jesus. They were baptized and placed into one church. Not the, not the Jewish church of Jerusalem and the Hellenistic church of Jerusalem. No, no. 
one church under Jesus there in Jerusalem. They were once separate, and now they were all one in Jesus. Now they were all expected to love and serve one another for Christ's sake in light of the gospel. But they weren't. So this reminds us of a truth you need to know, a practical application of this. Number one, conversion doesn't magically erase all of our prejudices. It doesn't magically erase all of our prejudices. These were Hellenistic Jews and Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews who were Aramaic-speaking. And just because they were put into the same congregation doesn't mean that all of a sudden all of those past issues were erased. So what happens here is the church of Jerusalem is playing favorites. That's what they're doing. It's the sin of partiality that James addresses in James chapter 2, which is interesting that James addresses it because you know what church James is the head of? The church at Jerusalem. That's where he is posted up. And listen to what James says. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Then he goes on to say, um, if, you are really, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So, James there addresses the distinction between the rich and the poor. The problem here in Jerusalem is the Hellenistic, the Hellenistic widows are being overlooked while the local widows are being taken care of. It's the sin of partiality. So that reminds us that conversion doesn't magically get rid of those things. The second thing is, it reminds us that no church is safe from the attacks of the enemy. There is no church that is safe. You would think, if you were back here in Acts chapter 6, you would think that the first church, filled with super apostles like Peter and James and John and the others, they would be safe from Satan's attacks. But no. Satan has already in Acts tried to destroy the church through outside political persecution, clamping down on them politically. And once that failed, he turned to internal attacks, like with the scandal of Ananias and Sapphira. And here, with the widows either being intentionally overlooked or overlooked mistakenly by neglecting them. In either case... The problem is the internal unity, of body, internal unity of this body was being threatened. They were in danger of being torn in two. Now hear, hear me. Anytime, you might not think this was a big deal, but anytime the unity of the church is threatened, then our ability to stand on the gospel is threatened. Now why do I say that? Because... We believe the gospel reconciles all people together in Jesus. So if you don't live that out, if you don't live that out, then it'll destroy you. It shows you that you might give word service to the gospel, but you don't actually believe it when it comes to our day-to-day -day interactions. 
So that's the first problem, that the internal unity of this church is in danger. But there's a second danger here in Acts 6. Look at the second problem. Look at verse 2. The second problem is this. Not only was conflict endangering the internal unity of the church, it was endangering the outward mission of the church. It was putting the mission of the church in danger. It says there in verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, once this conflict arose, apparently some had requested at their corporate town hall meeting that the apostles handle this issue. You can imagine how this happens. There's a conflict in the church and they go straight to the pastor and they say, Preacher, you need to handle this issue right now. There's a real issue. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but I'm saying that that's not always... That's, that, that can be a problem, that this is what happens here. So they, they, they told the apostles and the elders to handle the issue, but here's the issue. If the apostles and the pastors and elders spent all of their time doing this, the ministry of the church would be in great danger. The ministry and mission of the church would be in great danger. You see, God had specifically called the elders of this church to the ministry of the word and prayer. So without the ministry of the word and prayer... Disciples would not be made, they would not be matured, and they would not be multiplied according to God's plan. Now, one commentator who's smarter than me, he says it this way. He says, waiting on tables would have left the apostles little time for any, anything or anyone else. The apostles would have dried up spiritually under the pressure of serving meals, plus all of the counseling and preaching with little time for preparation and prayer. Furthermore, if the apostles had agreed to personally run the food program, others might have hesitated to perform the slightest ministry without apostolic direction. And that would have fostered the over-dependence we sometimes see today, with followers afraid, uh, afraid to tie their shoes without getting permission from their pastor. And then he says this, delegation is at the heart of developing disciples. So that's the point here. So there's the danger of pastors assuming all of the responsibility and authority to themselves, making every decision themselves, and then destroying the disciple-making mission of the church. Which is why Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this, he gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So our job is to equip the, equip the saints for the, for the work of the ministry while we minister the word and pray so that the congregation will be able to do what God has called them to do. So what does the enemy do here? What the enemy is doing here in the church of Jerusalem is he is seeking to delay the work of the pastors or disturb the work of the pastors or distract them from their primary calling. And when this happens... No one is left to defend the gospel from false doctrine or application. And when this happens, the outward focus of the church is greatly diminished or altogether destroyed because the church's emphasis is to minister out the gospel. And so if there's always conflict inside, we'll never be able to do what God has called us to do on the outside. So what's the proposed solution? There's a problem. What is the proposed solution? We'll look at verses 3 through 6. The proposed solution? Deacons. That might be really good news for our deacons or really bad news. Because this is the solution. 
Look what it says there. Therefore, brothers, speaking to the whole congregation, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So let's look at this proposed solution. So what happens here? A couple things. First, the apostles engaged the congregation in, forming, in the forming of a solution that utilized the congregation's unique gifting. You see, God composes every church with everything it needs to accomplish the mission for which God has given it. So, God, so what the apostles do is they employ the congregation, engage them to come up with forming a solution. Notice they don't blame anybody. They don't hash out who's at fault. They don't hash out why this is happening. They just say we need a solution. They analyze the situation and work towards a solution. Every healthy church will do this. Analyze the situation and work towards a solution together. Second, notice what the apostles do. The apostles not only engage the congregation, notice that they laid out the vision in a way that protected the main task of preaching and praying. Notice what it says. It says, we're going we're to get a solution, right? But we're not the solution. I'm not the solution. That's what the apostles were saying. We can have a solution that the congregation comes up with, but it won't be us because we have a unique calling to maintain a certain thing for the church to be healthy. So they protect their responsibility. So this is what they're saying. We're going to address the problem together, but we're not changing our God-given role and responsibility. We are not allowed to do that. God says we can't do that, so the solution is deacons. And third, notice this, and this is important for where we are in our deacon nomination process. They left the specific choices to the congregation. Who chose these deacons? What does it say? Who did the apostles say chose them? You choose seven men. You do it. This is why we have congregational church government, because we believe the congregation has a unique responsibility in this area. It's not my job to pick them. It's my job to make sure that they're done in a, in a way that honors God's word, but it says here that you choose them. They selected the seven best qualified men for this ministry task. And notice what the qualifications, they gave a list of qualification and qualities that were that had to be maintained. They instructed the congregation to choose men that met certain qualifications. So look what they are here just from Acts 6. First, they were to choose men who were spiritually qualified. It had nothing to do first with their ability to serve tables or take care of widows. They had to be spiritually qualified. Notice what it says there, that they were instructed to select men that were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. This means they were instructed to select men, by the way, you might think they were extraordinary, no, ordinary Christians, ordinary Christian men. You know why? All people, all believers were called to be filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That's not extraordinary, that is an ordinary thing. Um, G. Campbell Morgan, the famous, uh, famous theologian, says this, a man full of the Spirit is one who is living a normal Christian life. 
Fullness of the Spirit is not a state of spiritual aristocracy to which only few can attain. Anything less than the fullness of the Spirit for the Christian man is a disease of the spiritual life. So anybody in this room that's not walking in fullness of the Spirit, it's not because you haven't reached the next level of Christian life. It's because you have a diseased spiritual life at the moment. The normal Christian life is walking in the fullness of the Spirit. So fullness of the Spirit is not abnormal, but the normal Christian life. They were instructed to select normal Christian men. Second, they were to choose men who were reputable in the community. Notice what it says there. It says, these, it says they were they choose men full of the Spirit, and, and they're of good repute. This means that their reputation and integrity went before them, which means no one had reason or cause to dispute their selection. If someone has great reason to dispute someone's reputation, then they might not meet the qualification that is here in Acts chapter 6. No one should be able to bring a charge against any of these seven men. So, they, respect, they, knew, they were respected both inside and outside of the church. Third, they were to choose men who were competent to do the ministry. Not only were they spiritually qualified, they were also competent for the work which means they were able-bodied, able-minded, and knew what needed to be done and were able to do it. Okay, Not, It didn't mean they could just talk about doing it or develop a policy of doing it or put together a system of doing it, but they could actually do it. They could go get the work done. And so um, they would be, this means they would be trusted to do the work. Now what I think is very interesting here in Acts 6 is that the seven men that the congregation chose all had Greek names. All those names there, none of those are Hebrew names. Those are all Greek names. Now, I don't want to read too much into that, but it could mean that the church chose as a sign of good faith to select all Hellenistic men to ensure equity of ministry to them. How about that? Now, I would think that, that, that I might be reading a little much into that, but all of those are Greek names. That could have been a sign of good faith from the, commun from the community at large to make sure that the Hellenistic uh, Jew Jewish widows were taken care of. But finally, no notice, what happened, notice what else here. Two, one more thing. They, were, they, ch they chose men who were appointed by the elders and the congregation for the task. Notice there, what happens after they do them? After they said, so after they chose them, what does it say there? These they set before the apostles, so they bring them back to the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. This is where we get the idea of ordination or commission. These men were commissioned and appointed to the task at hand. And I want to make this point very clear. They were given a very real ministry. Sometimes, sometimes people say, well, there's the ministry of the pastor, and that's really, really super important, but the ministry of the deacon is just somewhat important. No, 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 that's not what the text says here. They were both given a real ministry. Their ministry is no less important than the ministry of the word and prayer. It is not a secondary ministry. It is a critical ministry to the health and vitality of a church. I want you to notice that there's not a distinction in dignity between the two offices. Both of these offices are dignified in the New Testament. But there is a difference of calling and responsibility. Pastors are called to the ministry of the word and prayer and to the oversight of the spiritual health of the church. Deacons are called to the practical ministry to the needs of the saints. Now look there. Go, turn over to 1 Timothy 3. Let me work through this quickly, okay? I've got to go quick. So you've got to turn fast. 1 
1 Timothy 3. Notice here how Paul delineates the two offices side by side. Look here. Look at there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, remember that's pastor or elder. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's one of the clear distinctions between the two. Not a drunkard, not violent, uh, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. Deacons, side by side, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So between Acts 6 and 1 Timothy, we have a pretty clear picture of the expectation and roles of deacons. Let me just give you a couple of easy things you can remember about deacons here as we pray over the next couple of weeks about nominations. Notice here that deacons are called to be firefighters. They're not fire starters. In Acts 6, they solve the problem. They did not create the problem. Okay? Deacons can't be creating problems for the church. They have to solve problems. They, they are grease in the gears of the ministry of the church. They don't throw wrenches in the gears. They don't throw sand. They don't put sand in the gas tank. That's what deacons do. They smooth the ministry of the church. They are the ones that lubricate the gears, not make wrenches of them. Deacons guard and support the ministry of pastors and elders by making sure they can effectively pray, preach, and equip the saints for ministry. And in light of that, look at my fourth point at the end in verse 7. Look at the result. There's a complaint, a problem, there's a proposal, and then there's a result. Look there. The church organized for effective and efficient ministry. Look at verse 7. After they do this, it says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Notice several things happen because deacons are installed in this church. First, the widows received the care they needed. The church organized to better care for the tangible needs of their widows. That happened. Second, two of the, early, the greatest early saints grew to prominence from their practical ministry. Notice Philip there. Philip is the one, uh, sorry, Philip is the one who goes and leads the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ later on in Acts. What about Stephen? Stephen was the deacon who actually was so threatening to Paul and to the rest of the establishment in Jerusalem that they had him killed. 
because they were so effective in their ministry. They rose to prominence in their ministry as deacons. Two of the most famous people in Acts that are not apostles are deacons. And then finally, notice that the ministry was multiplied. It was multiplied internally in the church and externally in the community. Notice the connection between verses 1 and 7 as I finish this up. In verse, in verse 1 it says that the word of God was increasing. Right? The number of disciples were increasing. And then look at verse 7. It says that the word of God continued to increase. The word of God continues to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. So the church became more organized, more delegated, more efficient, and more effective, and its ministry multiplied, and as the word went forth and the practical needs of the church were met. Now the word that went forth, I want to end here. The reason we have to guard the, the ministry of both pastors and deacons is because the word of God is meant to get to the ends of the earth. And the word that they're specifically talking about here is the gospel. The gospel is redounding in Jerusalem and it's about to be launched out of Jerusalem and it's going to go to the ends of the earth, even here in the book of Acts. And that word is the gospel. The good news that King Jesus has come and lived the life you could not live and died the death you deserved so that you could have your sins forgiven so on the day you stand before God in judgment, you will, you will stand before Him robed in the righteousness of Jesus having your sins forgiven, being united with Him by faith, filled with His Spirit, adopted into His family as sons and daughters. We have to protect the gospel getting where it needs to go. And what the enemy wants more than nothing else is to distract us, delay us, disturb us, so he can ultimately destroy us. And that's why the ministry of deacons is important. But this morning, the most important word you need to hear is the gospel that both pastors and deacons guard the ministry of the gospel in communities, that we want the gospel to be clearly preached and proclaimed each week so that you know how to respond to Jesus. This morning, if you don't know Christ, I invite you to come to Jesus, lay down your sin in repentance, come to the foot of the cross, and find forgiveness that only Jesus offers. That's the good news that every church wants to get out to the world. That there is a Savior who loves you and His name is Jesus. And every day, every, every single person will stand before Him on one great day. And you must be ready to meet Him. Come today to Christ. Come today to Christ. I want to have a time of prayer and then we'll have a time of invitation. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask today that you would speak clearly to us. And Father, we ask most of all that... This morning, if there's anyone who does not know Jesus, that, Father, you would awaken faith in them. Father, if there's someone who is being stirred in a calling to ministry, Father, I pray, Father, whether it be to be a, a pastor or deacon, Father, that you would stir that and confirm that in them, Lord, through our congregation and pastors and deacons. And, Father, we ask that most of all, Christ will be glorified as you work to conform us to his image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.